0: I think that's why the good news is good news is that people who are trapped or enticed or even uh, uh, attacked by that evil power, principalities of powers if you want, if you will, uh, good news says that there's always a way out. It's always there and it's everywhere and it's right at your fingertips. It's in the culture that you're familiar with. That's to be the good news. That's why culture, revelation is in human culture. In world, And I, I was on the parliament where religions and I've done all kinds of Interfaith, interreligious, interspirituality. But one of the things of Christianity does, you have all imperialistic blah 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 you want to call it. One of the great news, good news, but the good news, is readily accessible and it's there. Okay. You don't have to pay for it, you don't have to buy it, you don't have to do it, flips or hula hoop or whatever. It's there. A lot of other religions have their great contributions. But what I like about the good news is there, it's right there where everyone is, you know, and it's always there. The problem is that other principality, that that evil is blocking a lot of us to have accessibility. Ministry to me is helping people see that it's already there, <laughs> okay? You, know? you don't have to go swim in a high jump or a bungee jumping. or whatever you want, you do that if you want. It's already there, you know? That's why it's good news. The gift is already given, you know? It's not like, gotta, right. you hermeneutics, you study herm- hermeneutics are trying to, under- no, that's okay, that's, that's when I teach, but as far as people live, don't have to unpack it. It's right there. There's a saying, a lot of particular old black women in black churches, they say, um, <laughs> there's a thing in theology called apathetic theology. That yeah, negative can't, theology. You yeah. know God through God's agency and presence. So everything that God is not is how we know God. And people, you know, so there's supposed to two old black women in the church. I was two old black women in the church, you know, working class. <laughs> Yeah, there was a speaker to come here to the church, and he was saying, you know, you can't know God what God is. You got to always know what God is. He said, well, you know, this morning I woke up, I got on the phone, I called Jesus up on the prayer line. He answered me, you know. <laughs> so, oh, honey, I don't know what do. I don't know what that theologian was talking about, but he asked me this morning. So, um, you know, you call him up on the prayer line. He'll answer. You don't have to do a hermeneutics or black. You don't have to do black liberation theology. Don't have to do that. So yeah, that's that's the good news, and how how the gift of freedom and liberation, salvation, the holistic is already there.
1: My guest in today's conversation is Dr. Dwight Hopkins. Dr. Hopkins is a professor of theology at the University of Chicago. He's got multiple PhDs from Union Theological Seminary, from the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He's best known for his work in theology of culture, cultural theology, and black liberation theology. I'm so honored that he was able to set aside some time to have this, just such a thoroughly enjoyable conversation together today. I was so honored to get to talk with Dr. Hopkins. Um, He just exudes joy as you're going to hear today. Before we do that, I just have to take a moment to thank all of the new supporters on Patreon that have jumped aboard this month and are supporting conversations like this. I want to be able to offer free theological education, to offer high-level lectures and conversations like the one we're having today with Dr. Hopkins. And I want to just be able to give that away for free. I want to help people... Learn the things that I I wish I would have learned 15 years ago. And I want to do that without saying, hey, here's a tuition charge. Here's a class charge. I just want to be able to give it away to people without plugging advertisements and things like that. So uh, to be able to pull that off, uh, I need your support. And I'm so thankful for all the new supporters that have jumped in. We're about 20% of the way to our goal of getting to 300 patrons, we've got thousands of people listening, and all it would take is 300 people that say, Hey, you know what? I believe in this. I think it's helpful. I see value in it. I want to support it. And I want to make sure that this, this can keep happening. And if, you're, if you feel called to do that and feel like that would be something you would like to support, there's a link in the description of this podcast where you can find out more. We give away... Tiered rewards, you know, things like additional QA episodes, uh, giveaway articles. This month, I'm excited to be able to share with members of Deep Talk's Patreon community. A special conversation I had with Dr. Greg Boyd, one of the godfathers of open theism, to see if Greg can talk me back into becoming an open theist again. I once was a card-carrying member. I since have had some questions over the last few years. So I'll have a short, fun conversation with Dr. Greg Boyd for Patreon supporters. So again, thank you for those of you that have jumped on board and are helping out, helping me out in this work. I can't do it without you conversations like the one you're about to hear today don't happen without your support. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. All right. Well, without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Dr. Dwight Hopkins. Well, Dr. Hopkins, uh, first of all, I want to thank you for setting aside time today for this for this conversation in, in academia. This is certainly an interesting time. And I know many uh, people in your position are working extra hard to make all sorts of modifications to their educational experiences that, that they're offering. So so thank you. It's a, it's a real honor to talk with you today. It's great to be here. Well, I'm, I'm aware of your educational experiences and academic credentials. I was first introduced to your work in seminary, and uh, it was incredibly eye-opening. It was challenging in many regards to my own contextual experience. But I'm really curious. I'd, I'd love to learn more about your, your own personal journey of faith, and what were some of the most formative experiences that shaped your vocational calling to be a theologian?
0: Okay. That's a great question to start off. um, Actually, when I started off, I had planned to be anything but a theologian. (laughs) So that's what happens when you fight against it. You know, you struggle with it, and eventually, it catches up with you. And I'm glad it caught up with me, my consciousness and my heart. Um, I'm originally from Richmond, Virginia, and I was born into segregation. So you know, we grew up legally in black community, black professionals, black schools, black churches and at that time black churches at least in our neighborhood combined both the deep uh, uh, we would say evangelical uh love of god uh heavy spirit-filled worship services and bible classes and baptist youth training seminars for the summer all the things that you might think about uh a southern small baptist sort of evangelical environment you know we read the bible we have learn bible verses we prayed all the time we had these it's horrifying. Jesus is in the men's bathroom. <laughs> I was going in there to wash my hands and it says, Jesus says to wash your hands. Says, I'm washing my hands. Um, so, you know, we had a deep, deep love of the Bible, the Word of God, a deep, deep love of spirit, a deep, deep love of family and children and the country. You know, I you was know, Boy Scouts, and almost Eagle Scouts, and, you know, all those things. Um, at the same time, so we were uh, involved in a religion. That spoke to the whole dimensions of the human person, you know, uh, interior, exterior, the mind, body, heart, soul, uh, all of that. The family is foundational. Um, So we grew up, in a, I grew up in an environment where, where there are many parts to being a Christian in thinking as well as living. Um, and though we weren't, the environment I grew up, grew up wasn't like them, some of the more Martin Luther King environments in and down in you know, Atlanta and Birmingham and places like that or Mississippi. Uh, but p- we were aware that we had to take care of the whole person, my family, my father, grandfathers and my great grandfathers, mm. whom I knew all generations. Um, so just organically, I emerged out of that, that womb of, of religiosity in the Southern black Baptist sort of Pentecostal progressive environment although nobody would have named it that. This is all looking back. Um, I was always moved as a result of that environment by three things. The the importance of the family. You know, my father was lived to be 95. When he died, I was 50. So I have 50 years of daily photographs of me and my father, my grandfather, great grandfathers. Um, And um, part of that sort of, Father, religion, cultural re- background was to always serve people, always to help people. Um, so my father, you know, because we live in the segregated area, all the classes were there. <clears throat> and one of the things I always remember distinctly when I was young was the little people across the street and down the street who lived in the public housings, would, would come by and ask my father for money. Did he want? Did he want? Any, did he want anything from the store? But basically, they were asking for a tip.
1: <laughs> and he never needed,
0: anything, but he always gave them, you know, something uh, just to have, so they could have money. Or I remember another time there was a guy who, a little boy who was found in the neighborhood and my, my sisters found him and my father brought him into our house. And my sisters bathed him, clothed him, fed him until we find his mother. So those type of, it's always service to humanity. Um, my father was never a, a clergy person but every Thursday, the the pastor of the church would come by his house and have coffee. And I was like, and I was real. I was. I'm the youngest. I was always around everybody. But looking back, that was a pretty powerful position to be in, where mm-hmm. uh, you know my father was an usher and um, deacon for the pastor to come by his house every Thursday. And but again, my father would he would be invisible in the room. You would never know he, he was in the room. But he when wasn't he was searching
1: for a title or anything. No, no, no. Yeah. But when he
0: spoke, it was such great, great wisdom. So that type of religious, cultural, family, service background, the role of my father and my grandfather. I remember my grandfather would correct the preacher. My father, he they there from farm areas in rural Virginia. He would often to correct the preacher on his quote of the Bible. <laughs> and he was just a lay person, you know. And then my great-grandfather was too similar. Um, that's the environment I grew up. I had planned to go, I graduated from college and I had planned to go into, uh, I was going to go to business school and become a, a, in global investment banking and become a billionaire and then serve poor people. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) And, uh, but uh, what I did was, before I went to business school, which I never did then, but before I was going to go go to business school, I um, felt a deep, sense of calling. And these weren't strictly in my consciousness, theological, Mm -hmm. you know, that is God has called me or Jesus called me, or there was an epiphany and a change of life. It was just this, this warm urgency and passion to serve in any realm that I could. So I said, well, before I go off and go to business school, let me uh, go into the inner cities and just volunteer just choose one. Just go there and live with people. You know, you're college student, you know, you do anything. You don't, you don't know what you're life. doing, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so a friend of mine from school, we both left Boston and we moved to Harlem, the old Harlem. I know you probably don't never seen the old Harlem. So you, this is the old, you know, rats and roaches and no heat in the winter and no air conditioning in the summer, you know, 110 degree weather. you know, the 42nd mm-hmm. Street and all the... It took the old, if you go back like, uh, and read some of the old books about Harlem, all of that, you know, yeah. chickens and waffles and gangsters and drugs and prostitutes and a good place to do ministry, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't go there to do Christian ministry. I just went there to service. I wanted to give back. You know, I have been so blessed with my parents and grandparents, great-grandparents, my sisters and brothers. I've been so blessed with education, so blessed for uh, embracing church that nurtured me. Um in Virginia, that I just and I, I just wanted to give back before I went into school and got money to help poor people another way. Well, that service of one year turned into five. Uh, each year, I said I can't leave these old black people. You know, they, though some don't know how to read, write checks. Some don't know how to go downtown and fight for a gas or heat. You know, there was also, unfortunately, one or two bad policemen. Not all, all police people are bad. I have law enforcement in my family and in the military as well. Um. So it's always a bad app, but not the entire institution. As far as my perspective, even my black liberation theology yeah. sticks to that point. Yeah. Um, and um, we dealt with, you know, legal stuff, financial stuff, family stuff, domestic violence. I mean, all the stuff that happens in the real world that the academy may not talk about or public political intellectuals may not talk about, but the day-to-day grind of really urban black America, mm. you know, uh, so there I was, you know, <laughs> and my friend. And I said, just can't leave these people, you know, Then each year, and so one year led to five. I never went to business school. So what happened was the uh, summer of the fifth year, I was given an article by my college friend. And it was a three-page article, and it was back-to-back. Uh, and I still have a copy of it since then. And it, uh, it, the name of the article was The White Left Must Deal With Racism. And he gave it to me, this was like August 1st, first week of August or something like that. Um, my fifth year of, you know, being with the people and working and serving people, volunteering. Um, and I put it away and I picked it up maybe a couple of days later. And it started, it had a guy, a black guy, a huge afro, you know. <laughs> you know. What year was this event? This is 81.
1: 81, okay. 1981,
0: August of 81. And uh, then I started with seminary, cemetery, seminary. Oh, seminary. <laughs> okay. That, that's the first time I ran to <laughs> the oh, word seminary. Wow. And it was Black theology, liberation. It talked about the church was both priestly and prophetic, prayed and protest. Uh, it talked about race and liberation. And I said, "Who is this?" Who and I was like, "James H. Cole. Who is this mm. guy? This kind of militant." And um, so I, but it was like that was my epiphany. Mm. And so my friend who had, from college, he knew that, and he knew that I was always trying to wed spirituality and public witness for those who suffer on the underside of history. He knew, it, and that's why he he knew me better than I could see myself. And I read that article over and over. And I said, let me call the guys like New York City. Where, you know, is it the Bronx, upstate? And I called him and actually Union Seminary was two and a half blocks from where I was living. I had no idea. I had walked around Union Seminary days. It was, now it's open with flags. They open up, have a new opening. Then it was like an armory. Mm. Everything was closed down. So you could walk around and the entry was very small. Now it's beautiful, it's breathing. Serene Jones has done a great job as the president there. Uh, and literally, it was two and a half. I was two and a half blocks from Union Theological Center. You know, that was you know that was more than a human thing. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I have the epiphany. Um, I'm in the right city at the right time. Two and a half blocks from the guy who put it all together for me in a very two and a half page back to back Xerox. You know, we use Xerox back in the day, right? <laughs> right. Um, and um, Summertime is usually when faculty, at least at major research institutions like Union and Chicago and Harvard and other, but, and Vanderbilt, other research institutions is when faculty never come in and you stay at home, or you go abroad, or you go to the Holy Land or do your digging or you go, you know, wherever to look at Christian art in Rome. But you do your research because, you know, September through June, we have to teach and committee meetings and students. So I was like, this guy is not going to be there. And I call and I called his office because the only number on the on the Xerox thing was his office. He picked up the phone. <laughs> I was like, uh now what do I well? do? <laughs> Literally, you know, I was this in 1981. I was like, uh, you know. Um, he says, yes. Well, I won't imitate Dr. Kong. He's passed now. But I was his I was his best imitator. <laughs> mm. of, of all his students, I was his best imitator. Um he says, yes. I said, I explained who I was. And he says, yeah, who's, well, can you come over in a couple of days? And I was like, yeah. And I don't know if you know about Manhattan, but I lived on 122nd Street, which is at the bottom of the hill where Teachers College is. So I literally, I just walked up the hill, crossed Broadway, and there's Union Seminary all this time. And we went up to Brown Tower, sixth floor, where his office was. I still remember. And we talked for three or four or five hours. We just talked and talked and talked. And um, that's what happened. And if you know Dr. Connell, he's a very commanding and clear figure. And he says, okay, towards the end of our conversation, he says, you go downstairs to the second floor and talk to Bonnie Roseborough, who's the director of the MDiv program. And you tell her that I told you to tell her that you are starting an MDiv program in three weeks. And I was like, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And so he said, you won't have any scholarship. I said, hey, I'm, I'm not coming for a scholarship. I'm coming to seminary to study black theology of liberation. Mm-hmm. So I had been convicted and convinced with that epiphany of that article. I didn't have any money, any of that, but I, was, I applied to one at school to work with James Cohn because I felt the gospel of Jesus Christ was presented in a holistic way for me in mm-hmm. such a short period. I had, uh, so I was at Union Seminary and... I um, was associate pastor at Bethany Baptist Church in Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York. My ministry was the Marcus Garvey Senior Citizens Home with all these old black people, which was the best education I ever got. They taught me more than anything I gave them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, and uh, in the course of uh, studying theology, uh, you know, Paul writes about some are called to preach, some are called to teach. So I actually have and continue to feel a calling to teach. I know particularly many African American churches, if the pastor can't bring the word on Sunday, you didn't learn anything. But actually, I think the word says that teachers are called as well as preachers. Yeah. So I'm, I'm deeply called mm. to teach. Uh, and I did my seven years of preaching. And I tell folks when I'm joking with some of my younger students now when they were deciding what they want to do, I said, well, God called me to preach and I tried it at seven years as an associate minister. And then he called me back and says, no, I think you're called to teach. So, uh, so no, that's what happened. The rest is history. So I decided to go the PhD route. And the rest is history. Off that one article that summer. Wow. Two and a half page Xerox back to back. And the fact that I was two, two and a half blocks from the founder of Black Liberation Theology, the fact that uh, he was there that summer, the fact that he, picked, he was in town, the fact that he picked it up, the fact that he was free the next couple of days, And the fact that we hit it off and talked for hours and hours, and the fact that Bonnie Roseborough was in her Mm. office—that's it. It was all. That's why, to me, it's it's more spirit inspired than just circumstance
1: in my my story. Right, right. I think you kind of answered my next question, at least in part, but I'd love to hear a little bit more of your thoughts on this. You know, um, you might typically have, especially, you know, I've occupied primarily evangelical context my entire life, and when it comes to pursuing uh, theology as a discipline, you know, you typically have your, 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 your biblical scholars and then maybe your systematic theologians, right? Those are kind of the two tracks that you have. Um, But I'm just curious as to whether the experience of growing up in an African-American church and being in that context inherently places a more outward-facing thrust, meaning a focus on how theology is applied to the domains of culture and, and life outside the walls of the church. It, does that happen uh, as, as a part of perhaps maybe historical necessity? Like you just don't, you have to think about, um, perhaps even for the survival of the community, how this guiding story, how the biblical witness, how it actually is deeply integrated into all areas of of life. Um, Was that your experience? Do you think that's the case that, especially in contexts where maybe the survival or the thriving of the community depends on how what happens in the church gets connected to life outside of the walls of the church, that it maybe shapes um, a a particular uh, interest in theology that looks a particular way?
0: Yeah, I mean, you
1: could... You could just take what you just said and just put it in my mouth, that's all
0: right. <laughs> They think I was talking, but it was you. No, I think you uh, hit it on many, many nails on the head. Probably there are others as well. Yeah, it it. I think there's a historical story that talks about how the black church, most, most black churches are always exceptions. So when I say black churches, I'm assuming they're exceptions. But there is a historical narrative, a story, uh, how black churches emerged in the United States and they emerged out of cultural, historical, economic, political circumstances, where we we're talking enslaved people who so got here an English-speaking colony of Virginia in August 1619. They were in a situation where they had to make sense of those Babylon type environments. And the, the word of God, the gospel made good news, to, provided good news for them. You know, it, it warmed their hearts, it helped their spirits, but it also was were a bomb, you know, not just in Gilead, but the bomb in the family, whatever family was, and the bomb for the children, the bomb for when they were working the fields, it was a holistic bomb. And of course, after slavery, then that invisible church, church became denominational black churches, so the historically the genealogy or the history or the story of Black churches in America is that uh, whether you know the historical circumstances provide a way for the good news of Jesus Christ to speak to their entire existence. So yes, that's one and two. On a theological level, many Black churches go back to in West African theological worldview which is most most indigenous people on the west coast of africa um even a lot now who've been urbanized and i have lots of friends who are urbanized when they come to the united states but when we go back to ghana they revert back to their parents way of view um would not see a separation from so-called sacred and secular so it just doesn't doesn't mean anything. You know, of course, people have been educated, you know, and whether it's Harvard or Duke or Vanderbilt or Berkeley or, uh, Kenyon college, wherever we go, you know, people go Virginia state, um, uh, Virginia union. So people have brought are very comfortable with modernity because we're all modern, we're all American citizens. I'm talking particularly African American churches, but at the same time, there's a legacy, there's an impulse. There's almost a Uh, A surrounding cloud, if you will, Mm. uh, remaining from certain West African sensibilities. Even now, people wouldn't know exactly how to name it. But one in particular is no deep separation at all between so-called sacred and secular. So there's one is the historical uh, story of black churches. Two is this uh, retentions or memory or reflexes from West Africa about not separating sacred and secular. And the third thing is that, um, even more recently, in the segregation period when I grew up, um, the church was the place that most everything operated out of or was related to. You know, even the you know the people who were winos, whatever, uh, they had respect for the church. You know, and the pastor come by, he it, straightened up. So it had a certain, uh, uh, you know, it had a certain good news. Uh, uh weight to it that everybody respected it re- they respected it because it took care of everybody it took care of the homeless it took care of the, the widow it took care of education it took care of sports it took care of, I mean all my stuff came to the church i said you know, i was a, 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 I was one bad shot short of, a, of becoming an eagle scout you know all that was through the church you know learning public speaking for young little shorties um, keeping people busy so they wouldn't be in the street providing sports you know, negotiating relations between husband and Mm wives. And then, you know, then I think today now, 70% of black, something like 70% of black families are uh, out of wedlock or something like that. We didn't grow up like that. You know, the church was the whole center. And like any institution, although God may have called it, human beings have to implement it. And when human beings implement the institution of black church, you're going to have some, sinful acts not necessarily sinful people that's my theology
1: mm. so it was
0: it was a good the bad and the ugly but still it held a lot of black communities together and again under segregation we saw the black i had a black dentist i had a. I mean all the professionals lived there you know and uh, all these role models so everybody was there after segregation people moved to the suburbs downtown you know hey more power to them they want to take care of their kids uh, or barrack to them, I have no problem with that. Um, so again, the more contemporary circumstance of segregation, uh, made the church the center of everything. Um, and I think also too that, uh, black churches, particularly pastors knew that in order for them to maintain a good leadership and ha- and fulfill their vocation in the black American context, they too had to speak to the larger issues. Uh, So on several levels, um, the idea that uh, the good news, the gospel good news is a holistic inner, outer, in between, upside down and around uh, reality and life reality uh, comes from those circumstances that the black church and black communities have experienced.
1: Hmm. It's interesting. You brought up the, even the connection and the historical connection between, you know, the, the sort of spirituality of, of, of West Africa. Right. And that in a sense, it's almost this pre-modern, uh, enchanted world view still, right. That maybe the enlightenment in Europe and the United States, the impact of that has sort of bifurcated our our spirituality and separated it between these categories, right. Of, of the secular domain and the sacred domain. And I, I, you see perhaps maybe a lot more, um, you know, a lot more upper middle class, predominantly white churches, maybe in the the more liberal tradition struggling and in decline. And I always, I grew up in a charismatic context, in a Pentecostal context. I grew up in Detroit uh, in much more uh, racially diverse contexts than probably what I even inhabit right now. And one of the things, I guess, in hindsight, I looked back and found so interesting was, there was this sense of this enchanted worldview that there wasn't a division between the sacred and the secular. And I always found it so interesting that in those contexts, there were plenty of other issues, plenty of issues happening in charismatic and Pentecostal contexts, and there still are today. But one thing that I've always found fascinating was I just never saw like women in leadership or black leadership ever a thing. I, I felt like that sort of enchanted worldview, that, that view that the Spirit is active. It's here. It's present now. Um, we don't have so much of an influence of of naturalism and philosophical materialism. in, in those church contexts, it seemed like it created this sort of environment that uh, that allowed for these things to happen, which were uh, now, as I'm getting a little bit older have um, spent some time in some other circles i'm going wow that that was really a blessing and a gift and it seems like the the experience what's uh, so fascinating to me is the the transformation of the christian narrative as, um, as especially as as people who were once slaves taking this religion that they were hearing from (laughs) immoral slave masters and taking that and transforming it to me is like one of the the great miracles in in Christian history and to see that transformation happen. And now for like the prophetic witness of, uh, you know, people coming from historically black church communities kind of speaking back into contexts where that divide, that sacred-secular divide has happened. I know we've spent a, quite a bit of time in this podcast exploring, you know, kind of the thesis of Charles Taylor, right, and the the experience of the meaning crisis that seems to be happening in much of America. And it's interesting, like, I sometimes just think, man, if if only... Uh, people that are struggling with this sense that the world is either sacred or secular could have had these types of church experiences. Like I had to be able to even just go over to friends' churches that were in predominantly Pentecostal, Baptist, African-American church context, just to sit in the back of those church experiences and to feel the sense that— th- you know the world is a lot more sacred <laughs> than we mm-hmm. than we we give it credit for. Um, I, I just I just find that that that's so fascinating, and I know that's been an area of focus for you is even just looking at the uh, the, the the traditional African American folk tales um, mm-hmm. and and trying to maybe pull out theological insights from those cultural stories. I'm curious, you know, why why you well, it seems like it makes sense for you and your experience to have this interest in cultural theology, which does seem like a niche dis- discipline to some. Why do you see the task of thinking theologically about culture as central to understanding what it means to be a human, and even addressing issues like racism?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think on a more theological level that the revelation of Jesus Christ to the human realm comes through the culture that humans have. Uh, the good news for me about the gospel, and con- you know, in contrast to some other forms of of the way or ways, is that it's not hidden. It's not secret. You don't have to have any degree. It helps you if you want interpretation. It comes to the human being where he or she is, and that is the culture. So theologically, I don't. I can't get around exploration of human culture because the good news comes and is revealed and was born into human culture. So <laughs> actually I don't have any big debates, you know, I just tell them, go look at the birth narratives or something, you know, um, so on the theological level, Christologically revolutionary, all the other dimensions of, you know, the good news reaching human culture. Um, that's one big reason, um. Another big reason is that, uh, for many African American churches, people didn't even didn't in practice did not necessarily pit culture from gospel. Hmm. It might have been some preaching against it, but it somebody could be a Christian when I grew up and still have a rabbit foot in their pocket, (laughs) uh, you know there are tales of how um, there were the conjure man and the pastor. And the conjure man, the pastor had his role, and he's usually him. <laughs> and the conjurer had his role. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, you, you, well, Aunt Jane might be able to help you get something to get that man to love you, but you got to give your ties to Jesus when Sunday came. <laughs> so, you know, in those very clear examples, but other ways too, you know, people were involved. I remember growing up, these are church people. And you'd come in a house in the front door. You couldn't leave the front. You had to only exit through the back door. You know, where it, nobody knew where it came from. So it was all this folk, cultural stuff that people practiced along with and beside deep reverence, deep sense of the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. Great church members, you know. So we, so the, the, my reality, and I think, you know, there are significant realities that resemble that, that there was not a huge uh, practical living separation between culture and um, gospel, and then also, uh, I grew up in a household where my father told. <laughs> so it's eight of us. So uh, my father had six sons and two daughters. My mother as well, uh, and I'm I'm the sixth son, the eighth child. So you know, I. I <laughs> It was ten of us. We you know we ate dinner together, we ate breakfast together. It was like leaving the beaver. I grew up, in like a 50s household. It really was. I, I's hard, I can't tell people today now because they 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 think I'm. But anyway, um, <laughs> so we had folk tales going around our household. My brother was like a West African griot. He would tell shine and stagger, and he was he was the one who helped the pastor on Sunday you know, do the communion. He was get the wine and bring it out. So this mm. you know, so I grew up like that, right? You know, and he his his Leroy, he could tell, I don't know if you ever seen those documentaries or been to West Africa or even South Africa, the rural areas, and see those guys just spin tales. My brothers like that. He could tell you all kinds of shine, Hi, John the Conqueror, you know, John and the slave men, stuff mm. I had to get a PhD and write about. I grew up with all <laughs> that stuff, right? And my father could tell brer rabbit tales and animal tales and he'd use the voices of the animals when, you know and we would be laughing and laughing and um, so we sort of grew up that way and then um, I also had another brother so it's five brothers above me and then my father. and my uh, one brother who was political he was uh, he graduated from Duke University in uh, class 69 had two they were 18 months apart so they one he was Howard University class 69. And the other one was Duke University Classics now. And you know, he was involved in politics, you know, black studies, creation of black studies. He's involved in, you know, peace work. So I had all this stuff spinning around, but the plumb line of, of belief and faith and God and church and all that stuff was there. But everything was weaving in and out of my own personal story. So um, theologically speaking, gospel revealed, good news through human culture. Um the larger community church that I grew up in about uh at least in practice. There may some who have said that this is not real, but they would practice uh a, a, a weak separation between so-called culture and, and the gospel, and then my own personal narrative. Um and I too, we grew up, my father, and grandfather, and great-grandfathers, they had this um. Uh, This common sense folk wisdom, you know, Hmm. know, if it works, you use it, okay? But they they were never deep into Gullah cult. They weren't. They they were much more probably pushing us toward modernity and education, you know, Hmm. because we grew up, you know, so I went to, my father sent me to boarding school. So I went to boarding school for five years in New England. Then I went to Harvard, you know, I was going to go to business school, et cetera. So we had a deep thing about family, faith, and education. Those were our three fundamental. And... Uh, and then country too, critical view of country. But like I said, I was uh, I, I, I missed my last merit badge to become an Eagle Scout because I went to, car- to went to boarding school. Otherwise, I'd been an Eagle Scout. You know, I carried the flag, I marched the band, I played the bassoon and European orchestra had <laughs> to say. <airplane. laughs> right, so you we were grew busy. Up. Yeah, we were, well, they had to keep us busy. They had right? to
1: keep busy with eight kids, right? Yeah, what were
0: you gonna do with eight kids? Yeah. Do <laughs> um so uh so on various levels it was a way of life and uh, that I grew up and I was exposed to and, um, a type of theology, although we never called it theology that I experienced in the church. And they, they, they made, gave us a warm life, a safe, warm life. And it gave us a gra. it, the church and the so-called culture gave a, a vision of what was possible for those of us who were in segregation. And I mentioned, you know, family faith and education so I've talked about family I've talked about faith church etc but education was the other part the thing about segregation and I don't want to go back to segregation I just shared this with my students and whatnot when I'm on the road talking is that those teachers loved us into excellence that's what they did under segregation they loved us into excellence you know, it's like stand up straight when you see somebody. Look him in the eye. Don't put your hands in your pocket. Okay. Don't wipe your face. Always shave. You know. Look, cut your hair. You know. Did you eye you iron your shirt? You know. Okay. You're gonna. You're somebody. When the door opens, like my father said, when segregation comes down, boy, you just don't open the door. You knock that door off its hinges. That's mm. how we grow, and under segregation, so educate. They, they really loved us into freedom. Loved us into. <laughs> they loved us into freedom too. Post segregation but they loved us into excellence. So, and they too were coming from the religious piece, you know, you know, God don't like ugly, stand up, you know, all that stuff was, you know, in and out of the family, school. And of course it's, it's church like that. Um, so it didn't really confront these great theological debates, which they are, uh, which you so clearly articulated, arose with the Western European enlightenment until, you know, 1981 when I started seminary, it just wasn't, Nobody's talking about, well, you can't do that because of that, because hmm. That it doesn't exist. So those are some of the factors that uh, organically led me to to write about and share about the relationship between culture and, and gospel.
1: Hmm. So one of the things I've been most interested to pick your brain about, and this has been a, an interest for years, and I'm glad to... This was, uh, you know, I've had a list of people that I was like, I mean, I'd love to talk to. They're kind of on my uh, my dream list. And so when you responded, I was like, oh, awesome. This is, this is <laughs> happening. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, back in, you wrote a book back in 2005 called Becoming Human, Race, Culture, and Religion. And when I first read that book in seminary, I, I encountered this framework that I know you admit that you grabbed from other places yourself this sort of tripartite division of culture into spirit, aesthetic, and labor. And I, I just, I can't unsee the world now from that framework. It's been so tremendously helpful. And I have to admit, I've kind of ran with these categories in my own teaching in a way that that, that possibly deviates from uh, your authorial intentions in that book. So I'm really curious. I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about these these you know domains of culture because i've i guess i've come to see spirit as this invisible domain of the transcendent ideas the the highest values the the guiding stories right you know those guiding stories that you were hearing as a child growing up you know they're they in, exist in this really invisible <laughs> domain until they become made manifest in something like an aesthetic, right? Like a story being written down. So I'm curious, um, you know, from my perspective, I I guess I would say I would always see aesthetic and labor as subordinate to spirit. If if spirit is the realm of ideas and guiding stories, philosophy, and values, um, it it seems like to me, the real spirit that people follow is the one that's always expressed in labor and in works of art, like like people's aesthetic, especially in labor, right? You know, you could say, and maybe this has been the message of the biblical prophets of the Old Testament, and Jeremiah and Amos has been, you claim that you're following this particular spirit. Let's say the you know the spirit of the Lord, but as we look at your labor. And the way you treat your neighbor, you treat the poor, you treat each other, it's clear that you've been practicing idolatry. So I'm curious how this, you know, this framework of understanding spirit, aesthetic, and labor, and especially as aesthetic and labor, from my vantage point, is always subordinate to spirit. Is that maybe compatible with your understanding? Do you, do you see it differently? I'm curious to pick your brain on that. I would concur. You've,
0: Generalized it and particularized it. To me, of the three, the spirit is the plumb line. It's the one that animates, it brings life, it adjudicates, it's the norm, it inspires, it soothes. it directs. Um, so it's the one that animates, it brings life to labor and the aesthetics. Uh, so definitely would agree with that. And I also would agree how you characterized it it is invisible, transcendent, uh, life force. That we don't see until it's revealed. <laughs> now, I think this is a Christian broadcast for me. It's Jesus Christ being with the Spirit yes. of God. <laughs> yes. I know I'm just—I uh, always use him <laughs> in my talking. Um, yeah, to me, that's what it is. Um, you know, others may have different views. You know, in Taoism, they use chi, and uh, certain forms of West African indigenous religions, they use the Spirit of the ancestors, and you know. Buddhism, Dharma, and real. But for Christians, for me as a Christian, speak for myself, it would be the uh, the Spirit of God that animates, that gives life, that directs, that adjudicates, that normalizes, that normativizes, if that's a word, that brings joy, that's a balm. That can be challenging and sometimes can be involved in painful situations on the human level. But
1: yeah, that's how I see it. Um, are you, are you as, comfortable? Are you comfortable sure. with the idea, you know, uh, this seems to be something that that's more out of fashion and perhaps more educated circles, maybe those circles that have been influenced by uh, enlightenment thought. Are you comfortable with the idea that the, in this domain of spirit, this we're not just talking about values or psychological forces, but that there might actually be what we could call like real spiritual principalities and powers at work in culture, not just in the movement of the Spirit of God, but possibly even in fallen principalities and powers affecting, uh, influencing and affecting culture. Is that something you're comfortable with? No, I'm very comfortable with that. You know, I grew up in Virginia, so right.
0: <laughs> I went to in five years at Harvard and all had PhDs, but mm-hmm. that's where I grew up. Um, <clears throat> We just didn't grow up in a family where you talk about it all of them. My father would never, you know, just he just lived it and he heard about it. But yeah, there's 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 something out there that is evil. There's something out there that is morbidly evil and lethally evil. Mm. You know, <laughs> we see it around in the United States. We see it globally. It's something they're evil, and it's transcendent, and it's awful, and it's powerful you know it's challenging you know people have written books about it Dante's hell all it's something out there you know it it, it 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 doesn't it hasn't gone away yet i think it'll go away at one point we can talk about that too yeah but uh yeah i do believe there's a there's we can call the principalities of powers of evil <clears throat> we can call it a fallenness we can fa- call it an unleashing of the dark side of the human we can call it whatever but i i think there is a Powerful evil and it's invisible, but it, and, and because it has, it's insatiable. It has to eat. It has to reveal itself, and so it consumes the human, the spirit. And once you mm. get to human spirit, the body and everything else, sexual, everything will. Um, <laughs> it opens the door once you get to spirit that way. Um, <clears throat> now I don't. I would. I rarely. I usually don't call individuals evil people. Right. Right. I don't like that. So <clears throat> excuse me. I um, I usually don't call individuals evil or evil people, so I don't like that language. Again, this is me. Um, But I would say that people who are possessed or overcome or have invited that evil spirit into their soul, their lives, or even their families, um, participated that way, either voluntarily or involuntarily. And, um, you know, some of it was passed down intergenerationally. That's why it needs to have intervention. Hmm. You know, that thing, that evil thing is insatiable. It, it it can come with a smile on his face or her face or his face, or it can come with a teeth bearing. So I definitely believe it, you know. Um, <clears throat> on the quote-unquote scientific academic realm, of course we can <laughs> talk about it being revealed within the psychological and the hermeneutical interpretation. <laughs> right, right. Uh, you know, and the cultural trappings of the f- human beings. Uh, yeah, yeah. But there's still something out there. There's something out there, and you know I don't debate people with it. I just know that it is, and live my life accordingly. Um, I think that's why the good news is good news is that people who are trapped or enticed or even uh, uh, attacked by that evil power, principalities of powers, if you want, if we will, uh, good news says that there's always a way out. That's the thing. It's not a reincarnation. It's not you're alone by so well you know i do i do retreats um but it's always there and it's everywhere it's, and it's right at your fingertips it's in the culture that you're familiar with that's to be the good news that's why culture revelation is in human culture in world and i i was on the parliament world religions and i've done all kinds of interfaith interreligious interspirituality but one of the things of christianity does you have all the imperialistic blah 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 you want to call it one of the great news good news but the good news it's readily accessible and it's there. <laughs> okay. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to do any flips of hula hoop or whatever. It's there. A lot of other religions have their great contributions. But what I like about the good news is there, it's right there where everyone is, you know, and it's always there. The problem is that other principality, that, that evil is blocking a lot of us to have accessibility mm. to the presence of the good news. We just, once we open it up to people and say, Ministry to me is helping people see that it's already there. Okay. You, know, you don't have to go swim in a high jump or a jumping jump or whatever you want to do that if you want. It's already there. You know, that's why it's good news. And again, I, as I know, you know, I've studied, I've taught, I've co taught, I've traveled, where I've Been involved with dialogue, all kinds of religions and spiritualities, and of course in East Asia, they call self-cultivation practice like Taoism, Confucianism, you know. But uh, I think what gives me life is that news that brings life. So that's why, to me, if I think Christianity is 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 the way to deal with that principalities and powers, because of uh, the gift is already given. You know, it's not like. you hermeneutics, you study herm- Hermeneutics are trying to un no, that's okay, that's that's what I teach. But as far as people live, don't have to unpack it. It's right there. There's the saying a lot of particularly older black women in jack churches. They said, um, <laughs> there's a thing in theology called apathetic theology.
1: Yeah, the negative that theology. Can't, yeah. Can't
0: know God through God's agency and presence. So everything that God is not is how we know God. And people, you know, so there's was a two old black women in the church. I was two old black women in the church, you know, working class. <laughs> yeah, there was a speaker to come here to the church, and he was saying, you know, you can't know God what God is. Got to always know what God is. He said, well, you know, this morning I woke up, I got on the phone, I called Jesus up on the prayer line. He
1: answered.
0: You know, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh honey, I don't know what I don't know what that theologian was talking about, but he asked me this morning, so. Um, you know, you call them up on the prayer line. Hell yes, sir. you don't have to do hermeneutics or black. You don't have to do black liberation theology. Mm. You don't have to do that. So mm. yeah, that's that's the good news and how mm. how the gift of freedom and liberation, salvation, the holistic is already there.
1: Mm. You know, and that, amen. Yeah, amen. I so. say amen to that. <laughs> well, we've seen some renewed debate about what sort of appropriate aesthetic symbols, like statues. Inappropriate appropriate liturgical, we could call them liturgical responses, like standing or kneeling before flags and national songs should look like in America. How do you theologically interpret what's going on in this this cultural moment? Man,
0: I'm so glad you asked me that question because I have been keeping my mouth shut. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I believe in the gospel news. I think I'm particularly called to do... uh, the educational realm and that's all kinds of education as you can tell and one of the beautiful ways for me to express it is through black liberation theology there are other ways and the black liberation theology that we were i was developing at least my generation was allow everyone at the table hmm. that was the whole first of it that jesus has provided a banquet for everybody the problem is there's certain people who are falling to principal's evil prince that'll, that are narrowing the people of the banquet that's the, that's what black liberation theology is. My version. There are different versions. so That's why I say my version. Many versions of black liberation theology. So that's my version. Is that? Um, so I'm having. I'm struggling with statues being pulled down. You would say, "Hopkins, <laughs> people are gonna they're gonna take my black my black male card out of my wallet now. they <laughs> remove, <laughs> remove me from the black <laughs> mail race." <laughs> you know? But it's just. I think it would be. It's proper. One is important; it's part of the history and the heritage. One and two, you know, I came under segregation, and that you know the statue of Robert Lee in Richmond, Virginia. We drew; I've driven past that statue many times because <laughs> I'm from Richmond, right? And they took that. Um, I would prefer a ongoing dialogue and debate before before the statue came down, or a broader consensus, um, and maybe pe- and let the people. Out of that process, organically decide what it should, where, where it should go. Some people may say, well, look, now that I know what it is, you know, like Abraham Lincoln. Whatever you say, who knows? Maybe out of the debate, people say, okay, we'll keep his up. Hmm. Maybe we don't like the fact that, that this particular one would an enslaved man, you know, underneath his kneecap, but maybe we'll keep him up and do another one. So maybe he'll stay over with Or maybe... We found out that one of these Confederate, fl- Confederate statues, the guy you know, killed you know, 300 Black people, so we got to, this one has got to go. And maybe we won't destroy it, but for, for academic historical heritage, we'll put him in a museum. <laughs> okay. But, so one, I just think that the thing, my view is, is from Black and racial theology is, is it was to open the banquet table, so, not open, let the banquet tables provide for all human beings, all human beings. Everybody, especially ones we don't like, one. And two, it seems to me there needs to be a process where people, we all understand what's going on and then case by case make a decision. My own, and, you know, I came out of, you know, Harlem for five years and we did, you know, bad police brutality, not all police, you know, we did, you know, bad landlords, not all landlords. We fight education, not all bad public schools. Are bad. Um, so I had five years. Live in that, you know, it was, it, wow, that's an amazing way to live. But um, it seems like we bring everybody together to talk about what's going on, using <laughs> Marvin Gaye from the 60s, hmm. then make the decision. Okay, so what happens if a group of people say, well, we don't like Martin Luther King statues? And they just start going around the country pulling down Martin King statues, you know. <laughs> mm. Or a group of people say we don't like pictures of the crucifix with Jesus. We're just going to run up in some churches and pull those down. You know, it's just.
1: I, well, I just saw I, Frederick Douglass. A Frederick Douglass statue was pulled down.
0: Frederick Douglass, Ulysses Grant. Grant is the whole. You know, I. You know, since Virginia was at the foundation of the of the country. And all the slave, the six of the slave masters and rich, you know, all this, I know the history grew up with that. You know, I grew up, we read the con, I know the constitution, I know the Declaration, I know what happened in Freedom Hall, because Virginia, our education system, because it was a colony in the center of it, we learned it for good or for ill. That's why I, you know, I know there's you with Grant who Grant is and who uh, Douglas is and who, you know, when I was a little shorty growing up. So it just seems that, um, one, it's better for the spirit of America. And this is really the thing that's troubling my heart at this point, maybe age and – is the, what's happened to the spirit of America hmm. and what's the spiritual life for children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. So Right let's, now.
1: Pardon? Uh, so let's say even th- – you acknowledge behind perhaps some of the initial reasons why some of these statues were, were created, were, were placed as monuments of our culture. Let's say you even acknowledge that behind that there are some spiritual principalities at work that need to come down. You have a concern with maybe even another spiritual principality in power that plays out in the methodology of taking those things down? I think that... <clears throat> or in the um, the attitudes and behaviors? Uh, Let me put it this way. Okay. Historic. So I was alive when Dwight D. Eisenhower was
0: president, hence my name Dwight. Hmm. <laughs> so I've gone through the Cuban Missile Crisis. I've gone through when Eisenhower came out of office, his famous speech, beware of the industrial... I mean, I was alive then. I was alive, you know, when Russia and the Soviet Union and U.S. and... I was alive through, you know. I went through, you know, I went through the assassination of, you know, King, Mega Evers, Robert Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, first man on the moon, you know, all Elvis Presley, the Beatles, the hippies, you know, sixth street convention, eight convention, Democrat. We thought, people thought next, the fashion was coming, you know, a lot of people, young people, um, you know, Rodney King, 92, uh, you know, the bomb, everything, you know, George Bush, did he win his, didn't win? and. First to see all that stuff, right? Um, I have never experienced in my lifetime the most, this, this is the most contentious spiritual fighting and anger in my country, okay? Wow. <laughs> I've never experienced it. Even with Nixon, it was not like there was a bipartisan, you know, it was just, and it just came to the point. This guy, his, uh, and I'm not saying, I'm not talking about Biden or, Right. I'm not right. talking about then. Let's just make that clear to the mm-hmm. listeners. Um, I'm talking about that spiritual level. That is, what do we leave the children after it's all over? After all these politicians and academics and public intellectuals and on and on. After thirty, after that thirty or forty years of our career, what do we leave? What what, we, what in America and I can speak to the world, but particularly USA. What are we leaving the children? You know, um, I give an example. There was a demonstration. So we sort of know the police, you know, everybody's the police. Okay, so we, you're in that right? But I'm also, I look at all, I look at the children and impact. There was a clip. Um, I'm not sure which station it's on. And a police, white. so there was a demonstration and a black father had brought his five-year old daughter to the demonstration. It was not Minneapolis. I would have told you directly. Uh, but it was around you know, Mr. George's uh, murder. To I me, mean, it wasn't just death. He was murdered right um so i'm i 'm with that he was executed,
1: yeah,,
0: um, but the fallout, and so there's a blo on the video YouTube, there's youtube there 's a news which showed in YouTube, and the f- black father brings his daughter, who's five years old, and so she 's staying there there police line et cetera, and so one of the police comes over a st- white policeman starts talking to her, and she 's like ah, da, da, da. And he's saying, "Yeah, I know this is a rough time. This is the white piece, the little fiber. He Says, "You know, I have a I have a daughter. I have children like that." And so, and then he goes off. You know, be care, safe, and, all. and so the daughter turns to the black father, and says, "I didn't know policemen had children." Hmm. me, That's wow. highly problematic. Wow. You know. So, what kind of America is that? Okay. <laughs> And you know, that isn't, you know, not all five year old black children may think that, but my point is that the gospel is, it sweeps everywhere equally, all sides, everywhere. There is no mannequin right and one side wrong. And I'm concerned about a spirituality that. May develop where we get a sort of Machiavellian. It's either white or it's either black. It's rather up or down. To me, the gospel is good news for everybody. You know, even those who, who may go to hell, metaphorically, they had the opportunity. right? Mm. <laughs> they weren't. They didn't. They weren't start. They didn't start out as demons. Something right, happened. Right. Um, so when I mean spirituality, uh, I mean that. So that guides in my own humble thinking how I see the statues, the slavery people who perpetrated slavery, particularly the leaders, and those are the ones who have statues up. Were involved in some very horrific human and spiritually demonic practices, okay. The, so we're, I'm on board with that, you know. Um, I, you know I, was, I think, you know, Jeff Rich might have been a Catholic confederate, Jeff Davis, I'm not sure. <laughs> I just grew up with all of this stuff, so there's nothing new. I know all those statues, what they mean, where they. Um, if a group of citizens get ropes and chains, which can suggest some other metaphors for somebody Mm -hmm. (laughs) and go out and start pulling down evil statues, is that the way to go? That's all I'm saying. I'm just, it's, it's, it's um, Mm. it's right to go. It can, if others get caught up in that type of, and again, to me, this, is the minority of the post, Mr. George protests. My humble view. I don't. I don't have a broad pain against everybody. I think no. there's. You know, I agree.
1: I'm down but, the street from it. <laughs> it's,
0: yeah. It's, right. Yeah. So, and of course, the news is not talking about that part. No, since definitely we're not. But are talking about it, then someone else says, "Well, look, you know, all right, we're going to pick them on the energy, and we're going to, you know, go around and you know try to get to Martin Luther King, or you know, maybe that's what they did to. Well, who knows who did? Frigging left, right, center, top. But yeah. all I'm saying, where does the energy stop? It seems to me that some of us have to say, look, we've got to redirect the energy, stay with the with the evilness of the origin, and recognize the powerful symbolic nature of it to certain groups of Americans. When we grew up, I don't, you know, I think I don't I think most, and this is just blah blah. I haven't done a scientific survey. I don't know if the majority of black people in urban America who live there, I don't know if I well, I know my friends and family in Rich, Virginia, they talk about Robert E. Lee, we, you know, people go to Walt, Walt Costco to get their, you know, stuff with their kids, you know. <laughs> Mothers are with their daughters with tricycles. You know, my nieces and nephews in Richmond, you know, trying to go to Virginia Union, get a scholarship, you know. You know, comb your hair and I plait when well, they're their hair. Saturday night, getting ready for church on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I wonder if the majority of urban America is thinking about Robert E. Lee statues. I don't. I don't know. I just know that there's so much going on. Now the opportunity is to think about it. That's the good news. Now we have the opportunity, that's the good news. But how do we engage citizens in such a way that it's educational, it's spiritually unifying, but it's hard hitting on justice mm. and lead the liberation piece out, the justice part. So to me, you gotta have both and, you know, uh, there's a line between deconstruction and destruction. And I think the gospel helped us with deconstruction, but destruction, okay, so what happens? You know, that energy is there now, that the statutes have been pulled down and the celebration, particularly in a lot of folks, probably, you know, um, but that energy of pulling, de- of citizens organizing in their interpretation of maybe the first amendment of what other amendments, we don't, as people have, we, that's one thing we do, we have the right to interpret as you know, American citizens, <laughs> unlike some other countries, which I've been to over 40. Mm-hmm. Um, so, some other folks said, "Well, okay, um, we want to express ours too. We may go get some other stuff. You know, that's 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 so the, the largest thing is, what is the, the unifying good news spirit that we want to have in the country? And I've never, like I said, I've never, um, I've never experienced any spirituality in America ever in my life, uh, maybe since the Civil War in my reading but not in my lifetime. I have never, you know, the Nixon thing was, you know, if folks have been around the Nixon, a lot of folks thought that fascism was coming. There was a fascism, mm-hmm. Nixon making fascism, you know? Uh, but, um, and then some people thought that John F. Kennedy was the embodiment of communism in the White House. You know, so that's why some folks said that he was taken out, among other things. So I've been through those periods, but, but still, you had My bipartisan different. here and there, yeah, oh, no, this is uh, it's frighteningly different. And I think it's seen on the cable news stations. You know, it really, and I'm not attacking people's livelihood because there's right. this is private enterprise. People get paid to do jobs, right? So you know, it's not that. It's just that it what's the energy that's coming? All, all it really is, you know, uh, and to me, it's all around. That's why I think it's the total spirit even though my thing is black liberation theology justice. So I'm still there because I think the good news of of Jesus Christ, is expressed in other realms of revelation too, not just exclusively black, but I never, um, so my heart is a little heavy. If there's anything, it's heavy. And if there's any possibility, maybe after the elections, the, the window will open up, um, to rebuilding. Uh, and I'm not saying it could be the re-election too. <laughs> so right. I'm not no, taking a yeah. position. No, Whether it's the election or re-election, whatever afternoon, on November 4th, maybe we can begin to do something there. Uh, yeah. So that's what I mean by spirituality. Mm. If you sure. time,
1: I'd love to throw one more final question your way, Dr. Hopkins. Um, I'm just curious. I'd like to maybe ask you to tap into some, if you feel comfortable calling it, Maybe prophetic insight. How, how do you see when multiple cultures with divergent views uh, exist within the same geographic region? So we're experiencing these incredible tensions by and large part because you have ideologies, you have different spirits. You might even say, I've, I've called it a battle of the gods happening, <laughs> a spiritual battle, even if people aren't comfortable with the real phenomenon of, of non material or supra material spirits. Um, how when these within the same geographic region, you have divergent cultures existing and side by side and interacting, is it necessary when for there to be some sort of new shared cultural structure in order for those different and divergent cultures to interact? Is it even possible to avoid having this sort of, we've got a dominant culture and a subjugated subculture dynamic, which we've seen throughout American history? It's obviously not local to American history, you know, it it could be, you know, in Ireland between Protestants and Catholics, it could be Sunni and Shia Muslims, it could be Palestinians and Israelis, there always seems to be this tension between having a dominant culture and a subjugated subculture. Do you have any hope or insight into how that dynamic, is it possible to change it? Is that the hope of the gospel, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, I'm developing my project into the theology uh, from wealth. That's the current project I'll be working on the next 15, 20 years. (laughs) Because I think that the good news of Jesus Christ for all humanity is that wealth is a gift for everyone. And by wealth, I mean earth, air, and water. Now, for us to have life and to have it abundantly, all human beings have to participate, participate in earth, air, and water, give the wealth. Um, that is not equivalent to the good news spirit. But it is good news spirit is revealed to a great deal in those three levels of wealth. And what I want to figure out and find out is how what, what is wealth, who has it, how'd they get it, and what you know, what, what are they doing with it, so that we can share this understanding of wealth in such a way that everyone can participate, particularly those who are in the subordinate parts of culture, as you nicely framed it. There are um, certain things that, and again, I speak from my own perspective, that fathers and mothers can do, and again, I'm talking from the Hopkins perspective, I'm aware of great debates and contributions, can do when there's certain levels of wealth available for children and people in the neighborhood. You know, when they have access to earth, air, and water, there's something that can happen miraculously with how children grow up and how they respect themselves and how they respect others, how they enjoy others, how they want to serve others, how they want to give to others, how they want to participate in ecological issues. Uh, This is what I mean by wealth. Just the economic uh, narrow definition of wealth, but a wealth that gives life, the wealth that provides conditions for the good news to take root deeply intergenerationally. Uh, And that's why I'm working on this project, to come at it this way. Again, to me, what I always do is collaborative. As you know, I write a book on my own, then I collaborate. So here, too, this is my contribution to theology, wealth to be in collaboration with others. Mm-hmm. There, We have some black public intellectuals, we have other who were through this uh, post-Mr. George uh, era. It's not post, his spirit is still there as far as I'm concerned. But we'll say, you know, for the seculars out there, it might be eavesdropping no on his station. In the post-Mr. George era, um, some seem to have been called for perpetual protest. That's, if they are called to do that, they have the right and as human beings, as constitutionally and as children of, they may not know it, God, <laughs> to do that, right? Um, others might feel that they're called to move the entire movement now into the democratic process. You know, I saw, I won't name them, some leaders who are pretty prominent and said, well, what we're doing, the whole purpose is to get Um, former Vice President Biden elected. So, you know, they felt that, you know, I can discuss that in my own humble view, but as stepping back, it's a a collaborative piece. Others feel that, you know, there's, we're going to not, we're just going to, you know, some people say, look, we're just moving out of the urban areas, moving to the suburbs. It's all kinds of reactions going out of there. I prefer a positive spirit, motivated based collaborative project. And in that larger project, I'm trying to understand the theology from wealth, particularly those who are on the underside of history, those in those subcultures. Because what this perspective has potential to do, this perspective of theology from wealth, how to define wealth, is to help those from the underside of history, those from the subordinate cultural structure, basically see that the good news of Jesus Christ shows them that another world is possible. And once those people know that another world is possible, anything is possible. That's what the good news does. It tells folks, another world is possible. And when folks grab a hold, as my father said, as, 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 as folks grab a hold to that, when they get hold of that, <laughs> to translate his it, as Geechee Southern English, then there's joy, it's infinite joy. And it's not just a, her, her, a sermon on Sunday. I've seen it in my own life, my family's life, and, you know, in other people's lives. I, You know, I, a lot of people don't know it. I, you know, do the high theory octane at University of Chicago. But for, for like 15 years, I did volunteer work in the south side of Chicago. I mean, you know, now at this age, I couldn't run fast enough if anybody attacked me. <laughs> back up. Uh, but then, you know, you 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 know, got to be ready to, mm-hmm. you know, and you got to stay fit. You got to be committed. And a lot of those young people we were working with and occasionally still work with it. Really is that you know some of the gangs they we, we said we well, all said you know uh, Hopkins you up there with the white folk on, on in Chicago you and Obama they would put me up in Hyde Park you know we we you know we don't y'all left the community this is them paraphrasing these guys you know they're like mm-hmm. y'all left the community man we, you know we don't have any mentors we don't have any basketball courts you know the police are always harassing us but they just don't have enough they 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 have no access to the type of wealth I'm talking about and they can't see another world's possible. So they, they build their own subcultures out of subculture. So I'm really, I'm still, I'm, you know, whatever language I use, I don't use, but what's motivating me is that good news that's available to everybody, particularly subcultures as you articulated, that another world is possible on earth in our lifetime, if we are only able to uh,
1: serve those who need service. Beautifully said. Well, Doctor Hopkins, it's been such a joy to talk to you today. Um, I would love to talk to you again at some point, but if we if we don't on this side of the eschaton, I I just so appreciated how I'm you. I'm have... that.
0: I'm <laughs> going to go to heaven. I'm talking about going there, but I ain't really ready to go yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm just so appreciative that you you've uh, one of the things that I, I was instantly drawn to and was helpful for me not having exposure to black liberation theology, and, and some of which that I had been exposed to maybe f- made me feel a little bit like I I wasn't invited to the banquet table. And I've been so appreciative of the way you have communicated the, the gospel hope that 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 Jesus our King has set up a banquet table for all peoples, peoples from every tribe and tongue. And I, I look forward to, uh, you know, hopefully talking to you again uh, sometime. But if not, I'm, I'm excited about sitting at that banqueting table and picking your brain for quite some time in the age to come, if that that's all I get access to. So thank you, Dr. Hopkins. I'm appreciative of your work um, and, and blessings on you as you uh, start and look forward to another year of, of, of teaching. And, and maybe it won't be 15, 20 years till you get this next book done. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you for the invitation, Paul. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. It's one of the most uh, provocative for me as far as thinking and holistic. I can talk about faith in this interview. It's in my family. I can talk about my fathers and everything. So I really, really enjoy it as well as political struggle. So this is an awesome, awesome forum. And you know, Godspeed in your journey as well.
1: Wow. Wasn't that a blast? I just, I enjoyed the conversation. I, I hope that same sort of joy that I experienced in talking to Dr. Hopkins was tangible to you as you listen to this conversation today. Deep Talks doesn't happen without the support of the Deep Talks Patreon community. And I want to give a special thanks to our Theology 201 level contributors, People like BJ, Carolyn Joy, uh, Eli, Josie, Luke, Paul R., Paul S., Sarah R., Sean C., Stephen M., Tim K., thank you all for your support. I just, I'm so blessed that you guys go above and beyond the call of duty to make this thing happen, and I, I hope you see it as a worthwhile investment of your valuable resources. If you got questions, maybe even objections to things talked about in this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You know, if I were to do a systematic critique of all of Dr. Hopkins' books, there would be things that I would have objections to. And I'm sure if he were, we were to have a longer, even longer dialogue than the one we had today, and I shared with him all my perspective uh, on where I sit theologically and philosophically, I know we would, he'd have differences of opinion too. But I'm just so thankful for the way even Dr. Hopkins models charity and nuance and dialogue. But I just want to say, if you have a difference of opinion or a different way of seeing things, I want to hear from you too. So reach out to me. You can reach out to me either on Twitter. I leave a link to where you can connect with me on Twitter. Or you that are wanting to get involved in the Deep Talks Patreon community, you can always send me a message there. I respond to every message and uh, hope we're gonna have constructive dialogue. So I'd love to hear from you. What did you get out of today's discussion? What did you have disagreement with? What was maybe a new way of seeing the world you hadn't thought of before? I'd love to hear all of it. Um, so thankful for the opportunity to get to do this with each one of you across the world. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for the energy you invest into these high level conversations and lectures. Well, until next time, we'll talk again soon.